Well, we're changing things up on our order. So if you're like, man, we didn't sing very long. Must have a long message. Um, No, that's not actually the direction we're going. So um, what we're going to do is have our communion and worship afterwards. So it fits in. Uh, with with the message, imagine that communion fitting in with God's word, right? Um, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and do some more worship afterwards, so it's not a an hour and fifteen minute message. Don't worry, but it is a difficult one, so I will um, you know prepare you for that and let you know that um, this is one of those passages that I'm like, okay, if there's if there's one that you could just kind of skip over. This might be one because, you know, it kind of helps you so you don't have to go through some of the awkward discussion. But in reality, it's very valuable. And we need to be challenged in areas where maybe we aren't normally challenged in. So uh, trust that will happen this morning. If at the end you're really confused about what God's Word has to say in this passage, please don't leave thinking, I have no idea what was, about, what was being said. Please come and, and uh, clear things up, ask questions, or throughout the week, feel free to ask questions. So in our series so far, I want to let you know where we're at, okay? We have talked about the type of person, pursuit, and passion that is blessed. And by blessed, uh, we talk a little bit about or have talked about the Greek word there and how it, there's a sense of happiness that comes with it. And I think culturally speaking, that's some of what Jesus was driving at is here you are. This is the way to, to happiness. But there's also a spiritual side to this we need to understand that when he's talking about happiness, he's talking about a contentment. God created us to be content. Okay, and it goes all the way back to a, an Adam and Eve or a Garden in the Eden type of a sense that we can be content in Christ. We're not glorified at this point, but we will be content at least in Christ. And so these are the ways that you can be happy uh, in, in your person and pursuit and passion. And so he started off with what are often known as the Beatitudes, and we walk through those. They are recorded, and you can go on, online and look those up if you'd like to. Uh, then we moved into the importance of living out that happy life. Why it is important, we're salt and light, and we're to be, uh, be a witness and testimony to people. And then it talked about who gets to define happiness. You and I don't get to define happiness, and the world around us doesn't get to define happiness. Our Creator, the one who gave life, gets to define what happiness looks, at, looks like. And then last week, we had Rob here, and he did a great job just talking through hatred and, uh, and uh, lust and those things. And those are the, some of the things that can destroy happiness. That was part one. And today we're going to talk about some more things that can destroy happiness. And to summarize it, if we make commitments and we break them, that destroys happiness. That destroys contentment. Because God wants us to be people of our word. So that is the direction we're going today. An honorable word has more weight than an empty signature. Now, if you've gone out and you've got a loan of some kind at some point, whether it be a car loan or a mortgage, you likely have had a huge amount of, of paperwork to do. And then you go, like if you get a mortgage and you go and you sit down in front of that person who's going to walk you through it at the title company, they're going to bring a stack of paper, they stick it on you know, the, the, uh, the desk there, and they say, okay, you, you know, you're ready for this. I'll explain to you what you're signing. And you're like, uh-huh, yeah, okay. And then they go, here's the first one, and you sign it, and they tell you, basically, you're going to repay your loan. Oh, okay. And then you're like, here's the next one. 
you're going to repay your loan. Yeah, okay. And basically all the way through, they just say, this basically tells you that you're protected and you're going to pay your loan. And you didn't probably read all of those documents, right? Has anybody here ever actually read through all those documents? Okay, you got a few of you weird people out there. All right. Um, no, I'm sure, I know there are some of you that, that do. You go through it all and you make sure, you know, that you're not signing your kids away. But, but by the end, you start to feel like, okay, that my signature really doesn't have much value here because I don't know really what I'm signing other than what the person in front of me is telling me. We can at times, I think, feel like we have so much paperwork, there's so much uh, legal uh, documents out there or so many of them out there that we may feel like when we sign them, the, the signature doesn't mean much. And we know that in our, our culture and our society, gone are the days when we can just give a handshake and say, hey, I'll, I'll pay back that debt, I'll pay back that loan. We've got to have documents. But isn't it great when you can have the kind of reputation where somebody would say, yes, your handshake, your word is as good as any signed legal document. Well, that's the kind of word we ought to have as Christians, as believers, and as people who are going out there to represent Christ in the world. What we say ought to have more weight than even a signature on a piece of paper, and that in in turn actually makes that signature worth a lot more. We ought to be able to mean what we say And anything we sign, we need to fulfill. Anything we say, we need to fulfill. So the question today that we want to wrestle with, and hopefully by the end you'll get a sense of how to answer it, is this. How do you develop a reputation where your word is your bond? How do you develop the kind of reputation, the kind of character, when people look at you, when you say you're going to do something, that they say, yes, what that person has said is good, Well, there's some things in the Old Testament that God has to say, so this isn't new. Numbers 30, verse 2, it says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word, he must do whatever he has promised. So God tells us back then when Moses was writing these things down, he was leading the nation of Israel, God expects us to to fulfill the things we say, fulfill our promises and the commitments we have. He goes on to say in Leviticus 19.12, do not swear falsely by my name. Don't go out there and say, in God's name I do this, or in Jesus' name I'll do this, because then you profane the name if you don't follow through with that. You become even a worse testimony, and you might even call judgment down upon yourself, because that's what you're submitting to at that point, right? I promise in God's name I'm going to do this. Okay, if you don't do that, are you saying, okay, God, go ahead and judge me at that moment? That's what you do when you swear by something, right? So he says, don't swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of God, I am the Lord. Or what about Deuteronomy 23, 21? He says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to keep it. I'll hear this quite often. If I win, you remember the, what was it, $10 million sweepstakes they used to have in the mail? This is a long time ago. I remember seeing them as kids and and you'd get that, and um, Ed McMahon, is that what it is, or Publishers Carrying House, so was, yeah, you get him in the mail, oh yeah, you'd be like, God, if, if you give us that, we're going to like give you some money, right? <laughs> Lord, if I win the lottery, you got, you got some money, right? And when you make those kind of promises, uh, well, there's some other promises we make, 
Lord, if you just give me all green lights on the way to work, what are you going to do? I, I don't know. But, but he's saying, don't, if you make a vow, a promise to the Lord your God, don't be slow to keep it. Follow through with it. God, I promise I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and be in your word tomorrow. And then the alarm clock goes off. Lord, I promise I'm going to go and follow through helping out with that person or follow, you know, call that person, encourage that person this week, and the whole week goes by and forgot. I, I there's a lot of things we'll, we'll say to God, God, I'll do this. Do we follow through with it? He says, don't be slow to keep it because he will require it of you and it will be counted against you. And this is the hard part. It will be counted against you as sin. When we promise this is what I'm going to do, God, but we don't follow through, that's, that's sin. We've broken a promise with him. Or how about just a couple of verses later, be careful to do whatever comes from your mouth or your lips. So not only is it the promises we make to God, but whatever we say, because you have freely vowed what you promised to the Lord your God. So when I make a promise to one of my kids, or I make a promise to Rebecca, or I make a promise to any of you, I need to fulfill that. Because it's like a promise unto God. Even our world has something to say about it. Here's a quote. I don't know who, uh, who said it originally, but I found it out there. Promise is a big word. It either makes something, people who follow through, there's character there, or breaks everything. And you know that if there's an empty promise that's been given, if you make a commitment, you say, I'm going to do something, but then you don't do it, it, it hurts that relationship. It hurts your character, hurts your standing before that person. It can break some things. And so we need to consider the words that come out of our mouths, the oaths, the promises, and the commitments that we make. Well, let's take a look at the passage. Uh, before we do, let's ask God for a direction. Father, we just thank you that we can open your word and we can be led by you to, to learn and God, I pray as we think about these things, commitments, vows, promises, the, the words that come out of our mouths, when we say things, we need to follow through. That our word needs to be strong. It needs to be something that's trustworthy. We, we are to be your children, a witness and a testimony out in the world, so we know that people are watching and listening and hearing what we have to say. And I pray, God, that the things that we commit to will be faithful to follow through with. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's take a look at Matthew 5, uh, 33 to 37. Now, if you're following along, maybe making notes in your Bible, you may be saying, hey, you skipped over 31 and 32. We're going to come back to that, and we'll talk about that at the end. I want to hit on this section first, and then you'll see why, I think, when we get back into verses 31 and 32. So Jesus is talking here. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to your ancestors... Okay, now remember, he's talking to a, a Jewish audience. So those who had grown up in the, in the Jewish faith, those who were Israelites, he says, you have heard this said to your ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all. Okay? So those are some of the things that we just read, Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Those are the parts ancestors heard this, you must not break your oath. It says, but I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne, or by earth because it is his footstool, 
or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king? And do not swear by your head, because you cannot make it a single hair, you cannot make a single hair white or black. Well, it's verse 36 that I think clears up what he's saying here, because you might start to go through and say, well, what's the big deal? Why? Why is he saying don't swear by, by heaven, or why not swear by earth, or, or why not swear by Jerusalem? What's the big deal? Well, verse 36, it kind of helps us understand what he's saying, and that is that inanimate objects, heaven, the earth, Jerusalem, what are they going to do if you break your oath? Are you expecting if I say, hey, I promise, if you say to your boss, I promise, I swear by heaven, tomorrow I'm going to show up at 9 o'clock like I'm asked to do. If you show up at 9.15, are you expecting the heavens to open up and a bolt of lightning come down and hit you? No, you're not, right? Or, or even uh, the earth. Are you expecting the earth to open up and, and, and swallow you? Are you expecting the people of Jerusalem to come after you? Well, what really helps us understand is verse 36. Who would swear by their head? I mean, would you say, hey, you know what, boss? Um, I'm going to show up at 9 tomorrow, I swear by my head. No? Why? Because if you show up at 9.15, is your hair going to change color all of a sudden? That's ridiculous. And he's going back and he's saying, if we swear to inanimate objects, what's the point of that? It doesn't make much sense. So he says our character ought to be really what, we, what drives that commitment, that promise, and makes it trustworthy. Look at the next verse, verse 37. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. If you get to the point where you have to swear by other things in order for somebody to take your word seriously, then there's probably an issue with your character. But when you say yes, if people say, well, that person said yes, and I believe that person because they follow through with their word, well, that says something greater. They don't need you to swear by your mother's grave, right? That's what people like to say today. I swear by my mother's grave or somebody significant in my life. I wouldn't break that commitment. Well, just your yes ought to be yes and your no ought to be no, and that should be fine just as it is. James 5.12 says something very similar. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no so that you won't fall under judgment. So there it is, backed up a little bit later by Jesus' half-brother when he says, hey, this is the same thing. You guys, you need to say yes and mean it. No and mean it. What are common vows that people make today? This one is a very common vow. In fact, many of you have made this vow at some point in your life. And I think this is how it ties into verses 31 and 32. 20 years ago, Rebecca and I stood in front of a large crowd of people. Well, I don't know, maybe not that large. About, about what we have here. And, uh, and we made a, a vow and a commitment to one another. And that vow was something like this. I, mean, I will have to admit, I, didn't, I should have either written down our vows or uh, memorized them so I could re-quote them later on. I didn't. And if, if I really really cared enough. I do care about my vows. I shouldn't say that. But if I really wanted to find out what my vows are, I could go back and play the video and watch it. But that's always embarrassing. So I don't. And partly because when I did my vows, I sang, I sang a song, and then I did it right in the middle. 
which was a bad idea because then Rebecca had to follow up and she was like all crying and bubbling and stuff and all that. But you know, you can ask her about that part. But here's, here's how a, a vow might go. Something like this. I, Ryan, take you, Rebecca, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. Now, you probably said something similar to that if you're married. Maybe you wrote your own vow. Maybe you had something with a little different wording. But along those lines, people today often, uh, we're going back to a time period where people want to say traditional vows. I'll say, hey, what kind of vow do you want to do? And they'll say, well, we really like to do kind of the traditional vow. And so this usually comes up, something along this line. Unfortunately, I think what people tend to mean when they say vows in our culture and society today is more like this. I think they cross off the till death do us part, and they put something as long as we're happy in there. And I don't mean that to to disrespect those who are getting married today. I think that's just how we kind of see it played out, right? It's like, well, as long as, as long as, as we're happy in this relationship, in fact, the number one reason that's growing, maybe it's not the number one reason, but it's growing to be the number one reason that people are getting divorced today is because they're losing their identity. That's their excuse. Well, I just, I'm losing my identity in this marriage, in this relationship. Well, isn't that the way God designed it? The two would become One. We would lose our identity, but people are feeling like, well, I'm losing my identity. I can't be my own person anymore. Therefore, we're going to go ahead and have that divorce and break up. Maybe we're not happy. And so it leads us to this point. Well, what do you do with that? So let's move into this passage Matthew 5 31 to 32. This goes before the vows and the commitments. Jesus said, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, must give her a written divorce of notice. But I tell you, okay, we're still in this, you've heard it said this, but I'm going to tell you this section of this passage. You've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, there's a lot of points to be made here, and that's why I wanted to start with the other one and then come back to this, because remember, we need to make sure what we say is trustworthy, what we say we're going to commit to and do. So we've made a vow, we've made a commitment, are we going to follow through with that? And so Jesus brings this to the surface, he says, here's a vow that people commit to on a regular basis, how are we doing? Well, if you go back to Jesus' time, what was happening in that day is you had men, and it was a male-dominated society, and so there were men that were saying, well, there's, there's this woman that, hey, she's, she's cute, or, you know, I like her, or something like that, so I'm going to go ahead and marry her. But then, I'm not so happy with her, so I'm just going to go ahead and divorce her. Because in the Old Testament, it says we can. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. It says this, verses 1 through 4, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, not because of sexual immorality, just, eh, there's something indecent there. You know, I came home, she didn't have dinner made, right? I know, that's so sexist. But that's kind of the thing that people could say, well, she's just indecent. He may write her a divorce certificate. 
hand it to her and send her away from his house. Now, here's the point of this passage. The point wasn't that it was okay to, to write a certificate of divorce. The point is it was already happening. So if it were to happen, look at what he has to say. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, poor lady at this point, right? And he writes a certificate of divorce or divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. Or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled, because the Lord would be detestable. Well, that would be detestable to the Lord. So if, if, you know, all right, I divorced her, she went off, she finally learned how to cook, now I want to marry her again. Okay, that's not a reason for divorce and remarriage, is what he's saying. You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. So, when Jesus is walking upon the earth, you have people that were going around doing this very thing. Hey, I'll marry this woman discard her, so to speak, and treat her as though she was property. And so God deals directly with that back in Deuteronomy, and Jesus deals with that again. He says, that's not the way we're supposed to treat people. And so he gives us some more direction on it. So in Matthew 19, Jesus deals with this again. Why then, the Pharisees are asking, did Moses command us, they changed the word a little bit there, to give us divorce papers and send her away? Jesus told them, Moses permitted you. He allowed you to do that. And here's why. Because you have hard hearts. Not because you're such great people, but because you have hard hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. And that's when you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and you begin to see how God created the marriage relationship. And how the two become one flesh. That's the way God created it. And God created them to be together and for no one to separate the two. So because of the hard hearts, people were getting divorced, but not because it was God's desire or what God wanted. Then he goes on, he tells us the last thing that we saw in um, chapter 5 and then again in chapter 19. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So what is he saying there? Because that can be a little confusing at that point. If you remarry, are you living in adultery? And some have interpreted it that way and understood it that way. Well, let's look at that exception clause first there. So I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, why does he throw that in there? Well, when two people get married, a man and a woman get married, and they join together, the Bible makes it clear that the two become one flesh. And in God's eyes, they are one flesh, and no man should separate what God has joined together. But if one of those decides to go out and commit adultery, well, at that point, they have broken that vow. Okay, and there's a a break that happens. And so already, in that case, the vow is broken. But let's say two people who are joined together and have not committed adultery decide at one point that they're going to you know, have a divorce for whatever reason. Let's say it's some ridiculous reason like that. The guy's like, ah, she didn't make me dinner tonight. Okay, get a divorce. But there's not unfaithfulness yet, and they're still joined together in God's eyes. The flesh are still one. The two individuals are still one. And then if that person goes and gets married to another person, then they commit adultery. 
at that point. And so he's saying, you know, if, if, if they divorce or they had adultery before, then, that, then that's happened. And if they haven't and they divorce and then marry someone else, at that point they commit adultery. Go back into previous verses. You've got uh, the portion where he says, you've heard it said you can't murder somebody. Well, I say to you, don't even hate somebody. If you do, you've committed murder. And then Jesus goes and he says, you've heard us say, don't go out and have adultery, commit adultery. I say to you, if you lust for somebody, you've committed adultery. And then he comes to this point and he says, well, you've heard us say that, no, you can go ahead and divorce and remarry. Well, I say if you divorce and remarry, you commit adultery. And so he's bringing all this together to simply say to all of us, we're messed up. In some way or another, whether it's hatred or lust or physically committing adultery, we're messed up people. And you, you follow through with the beginning of chapter 5 and you see it over and over. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who see their sin for what it is. And they bring it to God and they say to God, God, I need to be forgiven. So even in a situation where maybe the culture says, hey, it's okay, it's okay for you to divorce and remarry, Jesus comes and says, no. It's okay for you to lust. Jesus says, no. It's okay for you when that person cuts you off and and, and you say, you fool. Jesus says, no. That's not okay. And what it does is it opens up and it helps us to see, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner and I desperately need a Savior. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So I hope you hear that loud and clear as you go through that passage. And what you don't hear is, boy, I need to do better in order to make my standing better with Christ. That's not what we need to hear. What we need to hear is, I am already low on the totem pole. The only one that can bring me to the top is Jesus Christ and not my own works. He is righteous. He is good enough. And we're going to take communion and we're going to celebrate that fact here in a little bit to remind us what He's done on our behalf. Well, let's continue some of these thoughts because we want to take a look at, well, why doesn't God like divorce? I mean, this is something He brings up here, right? So why doesn't He like divorce? Well, God has joined together. He doesn't want anybody to separate. The two have become one flesh. And a public vow is made. And when we make a public vow out there and other people hear it, how we treat one another gives testimony to that that vow and how good our word is. Are we people who live what we say? So if you had, and there's a few of you in the room here that went to, to my wedding and saw, you know, me make a commitment to Rebecca and saw Rebecca make a commitment to me, if, if we're not living that vow out, then you may say, well, how can I trust anything else that he has to say? My kids, if I make a, a commitment to them, I make a, a promise to them, and I begin to break those commitments and those promises, they're going to start to say, well, how can I trust what dad's going to say? If I do that with, with Rebecca, right? If I make commitments and promises to her. And if I do that with you, if I make promises to you, and, and every time I fail to follow through with that promise, eventually you're just going to say, well, just because Pastor Ryan says, yeah, it doesn't mean he's going to do it. Right? We have to be careful with what we say 
And in this case, when we get married, we need to take seriously what we say. So in this, in this uh, area of relationships, let's take, first take a look at that, and then we'll take a look at the yes and no. To those who are single, I'm going to go through and talk through some of these with you guys. So for those of us, or not us, sorry, I'm not single, um, but those of you who are single, how do, you, how do you approach a passage like this? Well, obviously, the marriage relationship is, is something to take seriously. It's not something you just jump into. Oh, yeah, I think marriage is a good idea. Let's go ahead and try it out. That should not be in your vocabulary. Trying out marriage should not be in your vocabulary. Uh, some of you have said this, and I heard it along the way too. You know, when you commit to getting married, divorce shouldn't be in your vocabulary. Right? Now, does it happen? Yes. Do marriages fail? Yes. For various reasons? Yes, they do. Well, we'll get to that. We'll talk about the divorce and the remarried. What about those living together? One we don't talk about very much, but it was one that was brought up this week. Are you going to deal with that? That's a good question. What if people are living together? So they have physically joined themselves, but they haven't made their uh, public commitments. They've sexually been involved. Well, in God's eyes, if you sexually involve yourself, then the two become one flesh. And so what I'd recommend in that situation is you step out of that relationship and you pursue that relationship further in a God-honoring way and really bring it before the Lord and say, okay, God, what do you want to do in this relationship? Should we get married? Can we step out of this relationship for a little bit and then pursue you and then join back together in marriage? Well, for those who are married, we need to take those vows seriously. Do you remember your vows? Um, I already admitted I don't remember my vows. I know they were similar to this, Uh, but not exactly word for word. Uh, Maybe I should go back and find out what those vows are. But do we live by what we say? I know we committed ourselves to each other. And that is one thing I say now today. I didn't say it then, 20 years ago, but when I do marriage counseling, I usually will say, because people come in, they're like, oh, you know, we got to get the cake, we got to get the dress, we got to get the location, we got to get the invitations and all that. And, And my first thing to them is, you need to get your vows. Why do you need to get vows? Can't you just pick those out for me? No, you need to get your vows. Because in the marriage counseling, we're going to go through those vows together. And I want you to hold those vows up and say, this is what we're committing ourselves to. That's what the wedding ceremony is about, right? We get lost in all the other details, but it's supposed to be about the vows. Committing ourselves to each other before the Lord and before the witnesses. So take those vows seriously. What about those who are divorced? Is there grace and there's mercy available? Absolutely. And so you've heard, uh, we've gone through divorce before here. I'll say it again. If there's divorce in your past, the one thing I just encourage you to do is ask why you were divorced and bring it before the Lord and make sure that you have resolved that with God. If it's something you feel like you're still hiding, for, hiding from or you just haven't processed through it yet, I, I would definitely go back to God and say, okay, God, there are some things that we need to take care of here. Do I need to admit that I was wrong? Do I need to, to own up to it? Uh, and, and if you're remarried, there's going back to that again and going through that and then asking that question, okay, is there something in that past that's keeping me from having a stronger marriage today? And am I committed today to uphold those vows? So 
oftentimes the church has kind of put the divorce and the remarried in this because there's passages like this where like, oh, okay, you know, you can't do anything in the church anymore because you've been divorced and remarried. Uh, our take on it is this. If you have gone before the Lord and you have proceeded to ask for forgiveness and you know, hey, there was something that was wrong in that, that marriage, in that, that situation, and you've made amends and you've gone to repent and you've made it right and you've resolved that issue, then God can use you in a variety of ways. So don't think, oh, divorce is a lot past, the church doesn't want me. No, that's not true at all. Don't think, oh, God doesn't want me. No, that's not true at all either. God loves you. We love you. We want to see your relationship with Him restored, your relationship with people restored, and we believe there's obviously a future for any of us who fall and come back to the Lord. So where are you? I don't know where each of you are, but you need to consider those things and ask that question. Um, Where am I today with my vows and my commitments and my promises? Am I following through with them? Because that's what this passage is dealing with here. So as we go to the vows and promises, how to make a yes and a no stick. I want to give you a couple how-tos that I think are are important, and then we'll, we'll go into our response questions. First one, wait. Okay, if you are given an opportunity to make a commitment or a promise to somebody, wait. Don't commit before thinking it through. Okay? This is the most important one because this will help you with the rest of the steps. Okay? You've got to stop. And before you just say yes, which I understand our culture today kind of demands that we give quick responses and we give people-pleasing responses right? Now, what happens if you don't text somebody back right away? They start to panic. Oh, no. Do they not like me anymore? You know? Or what happened to them? You know, and we, like, we want a response right away. Wait at times. Now, you can communicate that. Let me think about it, right? But wait before we commit to something. Think it through. Think about the people it impacts. Think about your time and your schedule. The number one thing people say all the time is, why can't I do this? Because I'm what? Busy, right? And yet we still commit ourselves to more things. So wait. Secondly, pray. Now, you're saying, well, I can see that in the the big decisions like marriage, obviously. We should be praying for that, right? Um, Job, moving, um, commitments like that, but you know, the little commitments. Listen, if you're a person that's like, man, my schedule is so tight, then you probably should be praying for every little decision. Pray. Bring it before the Lord. Lord, can I do this? Is this something you would want me to do? Would you want me to say yes to this and say no to something else? Pray and bring it before the Lord. Seek out counsel. So pray, or wait, pray, and talk. Seek out counsel with other people, people you trust, people you respect, maybe family members, husband, wife, um, people in the church that you, you know, that you care about, and they, you know they care about you. Talk it through. Then evaluate. Okay, this is like the, the first one, like wait, but even more so, how does this impact other commitments? One of the things I think we all need to realize at some point, because again, our culture kind of demands we make quick responses and we say yes or we please people. One of the things we need to realize is this, 
When we say yes and yes and yes, eventually we're starting to say no and no and no to other things. By that I mean this, if our schedule is really full and you keep saying yes to everything, you're dropping things you don't even realize because your schedule's so full. And then you're always playing catch-up, right? Because you're realizing, oh, I said no to that person. Oh, I need to. And they bring it to the surface, and then you got to go and patch up that relationship. And then you kind of feel like you're in this, this tension where you're, you're trying to make these people happy over here, and you're trying to make these people that you've committed to happy over here. And we need to learn the value of saying no at times. Because in saying no to this person, we might actually be saying yes to this person over here. So we've got to evaluate how does this impact, how does this commitment impact other commitments and evaluate that very carefully. That way we can let our yes be yes and our no be no, and that way we can give an answer. So then we need to answer. So if we say, because this is part of it, right? If we say to somebody, you know, let me think about that, don't think about it for five years, Right? We have to give an answer. We've got to go through a little bit of a process, pray, talk it out, evaluate, and then get back to that person and answer with a, you know, yes, I can do that. I can fit that in. I may have to adjust a few things, talk to a few people about other commitments I've made or something like that. Yes, I can do that. Or, no, I can't because I know I don't have the time. I know I'll fail to follow through with that commitment. No is an okay word especially if you can't follow through. An honorable word has more weight than an empty signature. I appreciate people who say no more than those who say yes and don't follow through, and I know you do too. At first, you might say, oh, the person said no, they can't do it, that's a bummer. But the person who says yes and doesn't follow through, that's even harder because then you've put an expectation on them and they haven't followed through and then sometimes there's even more tension in the relationship afterwards. So let's let our yes be yes and our no be no. So what are we, what are we left with after all of this? We have a challenge to respond. I want to encourage you. I'll reflect upon some of these questions and, and for you to reflect upon them as well. Most people have a hard time saying no. At least that's been my experience. Um, in fact, I know I can usually twist people's arms into saying yes, which is a dangerous thing to do, and you shouldn't do that if you know you can do it too. Most people have a hard time saying no. What is the danger of saying yes all the time, and who does it impact the most? Okay? So I know for me, if I answer this question, uh, usually the first person it impacts the most when I say yes and get too busy in my schedule is it impacts my relationship with God. You know why? Because not too many of you can measure my relationship with God. Only I can. And He can. But then it affects other people like my relationship with Rebecca, my relationship with my kids. Because I'll overcommit to these areas over here to help myself look better over here. And that's an area I need to improve on to say, you know what, I, I, I know if I say yes too many times, I commit myself to too many things, my relationship with God's going to suffer, and most likely my relationship with my wife and my kids will suffer. And then possibly my relationship with other people who I think I can take advantage of or they'll be okay with it, like those can suffer too. 
Who is it in your life that it would impact the most if you can't say no? And then what step or steps do you need to work on before you commit to saying yes or no? Is it wait, pray, talk, evaluate, or answer? So these are going to be some questions that are, are, are out there for us to think about. We're actually going to take communion a little bit differently today. Uh, the worship team isn't going to come up and lead us through a song. We're going to go ahead and play uh, some music in, in the background, and you can wrestle through some of these. But I want you to hear something else as well, because this can be kind of works-driven, where you can begin to think, oh, I need to improve in these areas in order to better my relationship with God. This is more of a, of a reality check, and yes, we need to respond to it and say, I can improve in certain areas. But what communion, what it reminds us of is that Christ paid the price for our sins in these areas where we have fallen. Okay, so if it's, if it's lust, 70% of men in America, in our world, it's growing to that, uh, are involved in pornography at some level. And in the church, it's 50%. 30% of women, we usually don't talk about that, but 30% of women are involved in pornography at some level. If you expand that and actually go into um, chatting and, and developing emotional relationships, it almost equals out for men and women. That there are women out there pursuing relationships through the digital world, social media interactions, or uh, with somebody else in a romance style. Um, that is growing by leaps and bounds at this point. And so now you have men who are out there pursuing some sort of a physical um, you know, relationship out there in, in the digital world. And now you have women who are trying to build an emotional relationship in the world through the internet. So those things are growing at, at, at rapid rates. So lust is growing. Do we fail in that area? Um, hatred. You know, I just mentioned a quick, quick one. You know, you're driving down the road and there's, you know, on your way to work and somebody cuts you off and you yell out, you fool, or something like that. I mean, we have some hatred. We have some anger in our lives. Those all remind us that we are not good enough to have a relationship with God. Not on our own. That's why we need Christ. And so as we come to communion, we're reminded of that, that these things, these elements, the bread reminds us of the body that came, he bled, he suffered, he died. Physically, he went to that cross, and when he put himself on that cross, his flesh was a substitute for ours. And he died upon that cross in our place. In the cup, it reminds us of his blood that was poured out. The blood, and you go back in the Old Testament, it talks about how when the, the animals were sacrificed, that was the life that was draining out of them. And when Christ, his, his blood was draining out of him, that was the life that was draining out of him on our behalf. Death needed to happen. There's a penalty for sin. And he's the one that paid that price. And so we're reminded of that, and we're supposed to be doing this on a regular basis so that we can remember what He's done. And there's nothing hard and fast in Scripture, like should it be once a week, once a day, once a month, once a year, but it does talk about us remembering Him in 1 Corinthians. We do this in remembrance of Christ. 
and what he's done on our behalf. You go back to the Old Testament, how many times did Israel forget what God had done? A lot. Constantly forgetting. And so they need to be reminded that the reason they had a relationship with God is because God loved them and chose them as a nation. The reason we have a relationship with God the Father is because Jesus Christ loved us enough to die upon the cross and give us his own righteousness. And that's what communion reminds us of. So maybe as you answer these questions, you think to yourself, yeah, there's some areas I need to improve, but also let it be a reminder to you that in the areas you have fallen in the past to do these things, the vows that you have broken, the promises you, and the commitments you have broken, Christ's blood, his sacrifice covers those. And now he's asking you to walk closer with him, to be more like him, so we can be a better witness and a testimony to the world that we live in. So think about those things. Think about how you might be able to respond to those things. I'm going to have uh, the elders come up, and they're going to pass the elements while we take communion together. So as they're coming up here, let's go ahead and pray. Father, as we think about these things and we reflect upon them, We know that we do not measure up to the holiness and the righteousness that is needed for us to have a relationship with you. And that's what makes it so obvious that we need your son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you for the death, burial, and the resurrection that he died upon the cross on our behalf. That it was his body on the cross in our place. And it was his blood that poured out instead of ours And when he rose from the dead, he came back and he said, here's my righteousness. Here it is. We just need to accept it. So, Father, we we come and we declare, we believe. I believe. I believe in you, Jesus, that you suffered blood and died for my sin. That you rose from the dead. I, I know and I confess I'm a sinner. And I need your forgiveness and your sacrifice. Thank you. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that has never prayed something similar to that or has made that decision to follow Jesus Christ, that this would be a day where your spirit would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and they'd come to place their faith in you. For those of us who have known you for many years, may this be a time of remembrance, a time for us to reflect upon what we have already made a decision on and that we would act upon it. And we would turn our lives over to you to celebrate what you have done, to worship you for what you have done, to commit ourselves to you, to say, Lord, we're here to love you and serve you and follow you. That's what we want to do this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So think about